Okay, again, we are in Acts 13, that's page 921, so if you've got a Bible or one in front of you, leave it open there. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would help us as we hear your word. We pray that you would protect it from the evil one who would love to come and swoop it up. We pray that you would protect it from a shallow reception that would receive it quickly but then be burned up. We pray that you would protect it from a reception that would then be choked out by the cares and anxieties of this world. Instead, we pray that you would help by your spirit for it to land on fertile soil, to take root and bear fruit in our lives for your glory, our joy, and the good of all people around us. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes in life, people can go through the same exact event and yet come out with two entirely different experiences. So, for example, it happens when you take a test. I remember my sister telling me years ago in her fourth year of college, she's studying for physical therapy, and there was this sort of all-or-nothing exam. You pass it, you get to continue in the program. You don't. No matter how good your grades were, what your scores were to that point, you're done. You're out of the program. So you can imagine the weight and anxiety that comes with that exam. And I remember her saying that after she took that exam, day after day, she would take the trip to the mailroom to see the exam results. And one day, she opens her mailbox, and there's the cover. She rips open the envelope, looks inside, a smile from ear to ear. Just relief. All this anxiety had been lifted off her shoulders. She's bouncing out of the mailroom, and as soon as she turns the corner, she sees a classmate weeping, being consoled by someone. And she said she didn't need to ask. She knew. If you think about it, they had sat in the same exact room, filled out the same answers, answered the same exact questions, sat for the same exact time, took the same exact exam. And yet one emerged from that with a smile from ear to ear, overjoyed, and the other totally devastated. It happens in sports. This afternoon, our beloved Eagles will play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And by the way, I kept my word and did not speak about the Eagles all summer, and now it's football season, so you can expect gospel and Eagles every week from here on out, <laughs> right? So they play this afternoon, and two teams this afternoon will go into the same exact stadium and step onto the same exact field and play under the same lights, with the same refs, with the same rules, under the same crowd, with the same noise, and yet by 4 o'clock this afternoon, one team will emerge victorious, and the other will limp home in defeat. Two cities will watch the same exact game, and yet one by this afternoon will be elated and the other deflated. People can go through the same exact event and yet come out with two entirely different experiences. Now, you may not realize this, but that same thing happens every single time we preach. I mean, if you think about it, you're sitting here right now just like the person next to you and behind you and in front of you. And you're going to be looking at the same text from the same copies of the Bible, from the same preacher hearing the same exact words, and the same words are going to come into your ears. And yet it will be more than likely that you will have two completely different experiences. In fact, listen to how one man named Ray Ortland says it. He says this, Every time you hear the word of God preached, you come away from that exposure to his truth either a little closer to God 
or a little further away from God, either more softened toward God or more hardened toward God, but you are never just the same. If Ray Ortland's right, and I think that he is, he's saying that when you hear God's word, you will either draw a little closer or a little further away. Your heart will grow a little harder or a little softer, but you will never leave this hour the same. Would you hear that? That means that in this day, you will not leave this morning the same way you came in. For you will be an inch closer or further, a degree softer or harder, having heard God's word. This is why I think the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Right? Their saying was what? It's the same sun with the same rays and the same heat. And yet to some it melts and to others it hardens. So it is with the heart of every one of us as we encounter God's word. In fact, that's what we see in the passage we're looking at today. In the passage we're going to look at today, Paul is going to preach a sermon. In fact, it's the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. And in this sermon, he's going to say the same exact things. To the same exact group of people. He'll say the same truths about the same person, one Jesus of Nazareth. And yet by the end, this group of people who receive this message will have two very different responses. Some will receive it and others will reject it. And therefore, some will be forgiven of their sins and others will stand condemned. Some their hearts will melt and some hearts will grow even a degree harder. We're in Acts 13. So again, if you have a Bible, you can open it there. Acts 13, and we're in that wonderfully long section from 13 to 52. Let me give you just a word of background. Till now, the camera in the book of Acts has been sort of sitting on a stationary tripod in Jerusalem, fixed on the Apostle Peter with Jews in the background. You get that? In chapters 1 through 12, we've been following Peter It's in Jerusalem primarily, and it's to the Jewish people. In chapter 13, the camera is going to start shifting, and it's going to keep moving and not stay still anymore. Because now it's going to follow the apostle Paul from 13 on. It's going to be Gentiles primarily in the background. And we're going to shift from city to city to city to city, because now we are following the apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. If you remember, 13.1 began with that fasting prayer meeting in the church at Antioch, and the Holy Spirit told the church to set Paul and Barnabas apart, and they send them out, and now here we're following them on their missionary journey. And we come to a different Antioch now, not the church at Antioch in Syria. This is Antioch in Pisidia, and we come and hear Paul's first recorded sermon on his first missionary journey. As we hear this sermon, you will get to hear what he preaches, why he preaches it, and the two very different things that happens when he preaches. What he preaches, why he preaches, and the two very different things that happens as a result of his preaching. Now, I want to just quickly say that though this passage is about Paul in a church service standing up and giving a sermon... I think it's more than obvious that the application for us is it's not just preaching behind a pulpit. That the same thing that's happening in this passage applies every time you share your faith. If you know Jesus as Lord, your identity is you've become a missionary, a witness for Jesus Christ. So when you share your faith with a coworker and a cubicle, when you share your faith with a family member over coffee, 
when, when you share your faith with a neighbor, every time you do, this is what's happening. When, when Sarah Enslin shares her faith with her friends at volleyball, and I didn't pronounce that wrong. It really is called volleyball, right? When she does that, or when, when Shelly's thinking about how to share her faith with her coworkers, every time you do that, here's what we proclaim and why we proclaim it and what happens when we proclaim Christian message, the gospel. So first, what is it that we proclaim? What is it that we preach? What did Paul preach? Verse 14 tells us that they get to Antioch and Pisidia, and it's the Sabbath day that day, and Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue and they sit down. And just like we had here during their service that morning, the scriptures were read publicly like Tim just read it. The law and the prophets were read, and the leaders of the synagogue stand up, and they invite these guests from out of town, and they say, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, would you share it with the congregation? Some of you grew up perhaps in churches with backgrounds like that. I remember talking with Joe Tartacadaville or Sibby. They tell us if they ever visit their parents' or in-laws' churches, they go in knowing, I better have a sermon ready. Because just out of the blue, someone might say, Brother Sibby is going to preach today. And so literally, coming from the seat to the pulpit is when he's got to think up a sermon, right? And so in the same way, these guys were called on the spot. Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, would you share it with us? And so Paul gets up, he motions with his hands to have everyone pay attention to him, and then, just off the top of his dome, as the kids say these days, he spits out this sermon. He says, verse 16, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And then he begins to preach, and what he does is he gives this survey of the scriptures. I won't go through all of it for the sake of time, but I want you to know he starts in Genesis, then he goes to Exodus, he tells them stories from Numbers and Deuteronomy, he tells them what happens in Joshua and Judges, he'll talk about 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then he'll land the plane by referring to the Psalms, Isaiah, and Habakkuk, okay? That's the survey of Paul's preaching that morning, just off the top of his dome. And as he preaches, would you notice the subject of his sermon over and over and over again? The subject is God. It should be obvious, but his sermon is centered on God. Sure, he'll talk about Samuel, and he'll mention David, and he'll talk about Moses, and he'll say all these things. And yet, over and over again, the major character, the main player, the hero of his sermon is God. Look, in verse 17, God chose our fathers and made them great while they were in Egypt. And God flexed his muscles and brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. In 18, God put up with our fathers in the wilderness. And God destroyed the nations in Cana in the book of Joshua. In 20, God gave to the people judges when they were neck deep in sin. He gave them these saviors who rescued them and then gave them the prophet Samuel. In 21, God gave them the king Saul. In 22, God raised up David. Over and over and over again, through every page, through every story, through all the history, through all the activity, through all the supporting cast, the main character of his sermon is God. I want to simply say, one of the simplest and most helpful things that you can discover about the book in your lap is that the Bible is a book about God. That should be so obvious, and I know it's nothing profound. And yet, can I tell you, for most of my life, I read the Bible as if it were a book about me. 
It's about what I need to do and what I should do to get closer to God. This whole book is about me. And it was the simplest and yet most beautiful discovery to understand this book is about God. It's about who he is and what he's done. Every page is the unfolding story of God's story. That's why in the book of Acts, remember our subtitle for the book of Acts? Acts of the risen Jesus from heaven, through his spirit, on earth, through his empowered disciples. It's the story of Jesus. It's the continued work of Jesus now from heaven. So the book of Acts is not the stories of Paul. It's not the stories of Peter. It's not even of the apostles, but it's of Jesus through his apostles. And just like Acts, so it is with the whole Bible, that the whole Bible is about God. What that means is the book in your hands is not a magic eight ball that you shake whenever you have a major life decision to make. It's not first about what college you should go to or about what job you should take or which person you should marry or what house you should buy or where you should live. This book is not first about you. It's about God. In all the stories, it's God's stories. In all the action, it's his activity. And Paul is preaching a sermon from Genesis all the way to the prophets and showing them the activity of God, the unfolding story of God, history, his story indeed. And the point of it all, the climax of his sermon, it crescendos to this, that the point of everything God was doing is Jesus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point of all the scriptures, all the story, all of history, that the God who had been doing this and this and this and this, in verse 23, that same God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You hear what his sermon is? What do we preach? We preach Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the center of all of history, the center of all the scriptures, Jesus is the point to which everything was pointing to. Everything was, was an arrow. He was the point. Every story of David, every moment of Samuel, everything with Saul, all of it was an arrow. He was the point. It was leading to him. In fact, even time itself centers around him. Everything leads to him. Everything reflects back on him. Even our understanding of time, as is the scriptures, is about Jesus. Everything is, we are in 2018 AD, in the year of our Lord. And before that, everything before that was before Christ. And as everything in history itself converges around this one man, so it is in the scriptures. Here's the point. Jesus is the center of it all. What do we proclaim? We proclaim Jesus, the center of history, the center of the scriptures. And what did this Jesus do? Well, he tells us in his sermon. He proclaims Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus did two things in this sermon. Jesus died on a cross as our Savior. As he crescendos in his sermon to say, here's all of what God has done. And he has brought about Jesus. And what did this Jesus do? He died on a cross as our Savior. Look at verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. When Paul preaches a sermon, 
when you share with a coworker in a cubicle, when you tell a friend, and a neighbor over coffee, when Sarah tells her friends at volleyball, when Shelly tells her coworkers at work, what do we proclaim? We proclaim Jesus, the center of everything, who died on a cross. And Paul here says, he makes mention of, now listen, Jesus had no guilt. Do you see that in verse 28? He had no guilt, nothing in Jesus worthy of death. Now, in the scriptures, death exists because there is sin. We die because of sin. We cut ourselves off from the source of life in our rebellion and sin, and we died. We die because there's sin. Jesus, however, had no sin, which makes you ask, then then why did Jesus die? Hear that again. We die because of sin. Death exists because of sin. Jesus Verse 28, had no guilt, did nothing worthy of death. He had no sin. So why did Jesus die? And his sermon proclaims what we proclaim, what you proclaim, is he died for us. For our sins. That he took our place. He got what we deserved and gave us what he deserved. This is what he proclaims. This is what we preach. We preach Jesus, the center of the universe, the center of history, the center of the scriptures, dies for us, for our sins. It's like if a, if a rich man marries a poor woman. In the moment they're married, suddenly her debts become his and his riches become hers. So it is with Jesus. We gave him what we had, and he gave us what he had. We gave him sin, and he gave us righteousness. So that the Apostle Paul in another place could say, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We gave him our debts, he gave us our riches. We gave him our sin, he gave us righteousness. Jesus died for us. But Paul's sermon goes on to say, but this Jesus who is the center of history and the center of the scriptures, who died for our sins, also rose from the dead as our king. In fact, if his proclamation, if his sermon has an emphasis, it's on the resurrection. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it was also written. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 2, and then for the sake of time, Isaiah, and then Psalm 16. He says, listen, he starts comparing Jesus with David. In fact, there's even a word play here. It's the same word that God who raised up David has raised up Jesus. But how did he raise up David versus how did he raise up Jesus? Yes, he raised David onto a throne and David became a king for a great while. In fact, the greatest of kings. But then what does the text say? His sermon says, but what happened to David? As great as David was, David died. And when he died, he was buried. And then what happens to bodies that are buried happened to David. He was subject to corruption. His body decomposed and decayed. David is rotting in a grave, is the point. But how did God raise Jesus? 
His body saw no corruption. He was greater even than David. And this Jesus rose from the dead, his body free from corruption, not subject to decay or decomposition. This Jesus, we proclaim to you, is alive. Now hear me, Sevamah Road. Paul is proclaiming that as fact. And I know you have heard this, but would you hear it again? Because you are on the verge of moving one inch closer or further. One degree harder or softer. So would you hear it again? He proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fact. We Christians have not given ourselves to a fairy tale or to a fiction, or to a legend that we're trying to hold on to, though this world feels far more infinitely real. He has proclaimed Jesus as factually, truly, physically, literally raised from the dead. That the body they put in the ground, by the power of a God who does exist and his spirit, was raised from the dead. And you went to his funeral on Friday. And the following week, that guy showed up. And he was alive. Which is why, if you're here, and you're considering Christianity, please do not start with whether you like Christianity. Because that does not matter at all. Start with, is it true? Is it true? If this is fiction, we Christians are wasting our time, and I want to tell you there are lots of better ways to live, more satisfying ways to live. If this is fairy tale or fiction, there is much more better things you can do with this short life. If this is fact, that's why the question for you is not, is this something I like? Can I buy into this? This is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Whether you like Christianity or not, what it says about this thing, its rules about that, its ethics on this issue, what it says about this social, that's second too. Is it true? If I went to Dallas and I said, the Eagles are Super Bowl champions, and some cowboy came to me and said, I reject that because I do not like Philadelphia, I would say to you, brother, it does not matter at all what you like. Because what you like has nothing to do with the fact. And I can tell you the preacher of this sermon did not like Christianity. Four short chapters ago, the preacher of this sermon was killing Christians. He did not become a Christian because he liked it. He encountered the resurrected Jesus as fact. And therefore, it changed everything he knew about his world, changed everything he knew about Judaism, changed his entire worldview. They were no more likely to believe in resurrection than we are. I know you have a thousand reasons why resurrection seems crazy. Would you hear, though your worldview was different than theirs, their worldview also had no room for resurrection. The Jewish people believed at the end of time, when God comes and renews everything, there will be a general resurrection of the dead. Nobody anticipated one man rising in the middle of human history while everything else stayed the same. Nobody, if you said the resurrection has happened, they would have said, is the lion lying down with the lamb? Is, is justice restored? Is everything right? Then how could the resurrection have happened? Because resurrection happens when God renews everything. 
There was no concept of one guy in the middle of human history starting with resurrection. Except they encountered the fact of it. We proclaim Jesus, the center of the universe, the center of history, the center of scriptures, and we proclaim him dead for our sins and raised from the dead. This is what we proclaim. This is what he preached. Now, why do we preach it? This is what we preach. Why do we preach it? Why does Sarah tell her friends at volleyball? Why does Shelley tell a coworker at work? Why do you tell it to a neighbor or to a friend? Why do we preach? It's simply this. Because everyone who believes this is forgiven and free. That's why we preach. He says it, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you hear that? His words, not ours. Why does he preach? Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, that everyone who believes is freed from everything for which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Why do we proclaim Jesus? Why did Paul preach? Why do we preach? It's because everyone who believes this is forgiven of their sins and freed. Do you hear that? The death and resurrection of Jesus offers to everyone who would believe Forgiveness of every one of your sins and freedom to everyone who would believe. Would you hear that? Your every sin, your every sin, everything about you that you know, everything about you that you know would be embarrassing if others knew, everything about you which God has seen, that slate, that unending slate of your sins, wiped clean, completely forgiven, every single one. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus means that we carry with us a receipt that our sins have been paid for and we never have to pay for it again. Would you hear that? It's the receipt, the guarantee that your every sin has been forgiven. One preacher said it like this. If you were in a store, you bought a bunch of stuff, you were walking out and remembered that you needed to get something else. If you went back into the store with all that stuff in your hand, what would you make sure that you had? That receipt. You'd need that receipt because if you have that, no matter who stops you along the way, what security card comes and says anything to you, here is the receipt that all of this has been paid for, never to be paid for again. So by faith, we carry with us the receipt of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that when Satan accuses us, when our conscience convicts us, when the world condemns us, we hold with us the reality that our sins never have to be paid for again. They were paid for by Jesus, by his death, and by his resurrection. And we hold in our hearts the evidence of that reality, never to have to deal with our sins again. Everyone who believes this is forgiven of their sins. But not only forgiven, he says, but freed. The original language, the word he uses there is the same word for justified. Everyone who believes this is justified. Just a word that says we're given right standing with God. That is, he goes on to say, what you couldn't accomplish through the law, meaning you kept obeying, trying to achieve something with God. And you could never earn right standing with God through all your obedience. 
What the law could not do, Jesus has done to everyone who believes. You hear that? If you cheat on a test, not getting a D is forgiveness. Being given an A is being justified. Right? It's one thing to be forgiven, to not have your sins count against you. It's another to be justified, to be declared right in God's sight. That the righteousness of Jesus is given to everyone who believes. So that the reality of the gospel is, not only do you not fail, you are given a perfect record. It's not something you work for or earn or achieve, but receive to everyone who believes. What do we proclaim? We proclaim who Jesus is, the center of the scriptures and of human history, who died for our sins and rose again, so that everyone who believes this is forgiven of their sins and justified, freed from everything that the law of Moses couldn't give you. The law, one friend said it this way, the law is like a mirror. It can show you that you have dirt on your face, but it's powerless to clean it for you. A mirror can show you that you have dirt, but it can't clean you. But what the law couldn't do, Jesus Christ could to everyone who believes. So why do we preach? Why do we proclaim? Why do we tell coworkers and friends? Why do we suffer or, or make sacrifices? Because everyone who believes is forgiven of their sins and freed. But also, the inverse then is because everyone who will not receive stands already condemned and will be for. Ever. We're not going to take that out or soften that because he says it in his sermon, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You hear what he said in his sermon? He's saying, God in love for you brought someone here to declare to you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if you will believe it, you will be forgiven of every one of your sins and be free, justified as a gift of God. But if you will not, if you will scoff at this, then be astounded and perish. For God's doing something that you will not believe even if someone stands up and tells you about it. You hear what, what's happening? You are on the verge, brother, sister, of being one degree closer or one degree further away, of having your heart melt or harden because someone is here declaring to you who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And if you will still not take this, 46, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves then unworthy of eternal life. If you thrust this word aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now listen, <clears throat> I understand that it sounds incredibly unloving and narrow-minded and arrogant to say that if you do not have Jesus, you will be condemned forever and go to hell, unforgiven, unjustified, unworthy of eternal life. Could anything in the world sound more narrow-minded than that? That day by day there are people in our city that are slipping past this life into an eternity in hell because they were unforgiven, unjustified, and therefore unworthy of eternal life. 
Is there more, anything more narrow-minded or what sounds unloving or arrogant than to imagine there are places in the world that have not yet heard Jesus where day by day there are people slipping past this life into an eternity of hell because they are unjustified, unforgiven, and therefore unworthy of eternal life. Which is why, again, I want you to hear, if Christianity is fiction, this is arrogant, unloving, and unkind. But if this is fact, if Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, if he has done what the scriptures say he has done, and if the Bible offers what the Bible says Jesus offers, then I want you to hear the height of love, the greatest example of openness to all and humility would to be to declare no matter what sacrifice comes, even if they run you out of the district, like will happen to Paul and Barnabas, the good news of Jesus. In fact, if this is fact, what is unloving is my silence and cowardice as people stream by me all the time, slipping into an eternity without Christ, and I say and do nothing. We will emerge from this hour one degree closer or further away, harder or softer, and you must determine, is this fact or is it fiction? And if it is, in fact, fact, then what sacrifice is not worth being made so that others might hear of Jesus Christ, the center of history, died for our sins and risen again, that we might be justified? This is why we proclaim. Every time we proclaim, every Sunday morning, I want you to hear me, every Sunday morning, life or in death, is presented before you. I can't think of anything more weighty in the world. Every Sunday, you are brought to life or death, and you are said, choose. What happens when we preach? This is what we preach. This is why we preach it. What happens when we preach? You get to choose. You choose this day. That's what happens in the passage. Some receive this word, and in the story, they beg Paul and Barnabas to keep telling them about Jesus. Come back next Saturday. We want to hear more. The entire city shows up, and they hang on their every word. And Paul and Barnabas tell this group of people, would you continue in the grace of God that you have received? But in that same exact sermon, same words about the same person, some in that crowd reject. They revile Paul and Barnabas and essentially run them out of district, out of the town. And those who reject, Paul and Barnabas leave that town, that district, shaking the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Do you hear me? There's no manipulation. They respect their unbelief. Every one of us who's going to be a witness has to do the same thing. We present Christ, we proclaim him so that people might be forgiven and freed, and then we respect unbelief. They shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Jesus was offered, they wanted nothing to do with it, and they shake the dust off their feet and they leave. And these people are left in their unbelief, in their sin, unworthy of eternal life. But those who receive... The passage ends by saying, no matter what it cost Paul and Barnabas, the disciples, 
that's them and the people who believed in the city of Antioch and Pisidia, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's what's offered today. To be leaving here filled with joy of the forgiveness of your sins and justification with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ or to leave here remaining in your sins. People can go through the same exact event and yet come out with two entirely different experiences. Some hearts will melt. Some will harden. And I wonder which of it will be for you today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might have grace to believe what is offered to us today, that we might place our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of everything, the center of history, the point of every page of your scriptures, that in love for us, he came and died for us, that his righteousness might be ours and our sin might be his. And he rose from the dead that we might have freedom from all that we could not have through the law of Moses, received by faith. We pray, O oh God, that you would seal this in our hearts and protect it from the evil one, from the cares of this world, from anxieties, and that it would take root and bear fruit. We pray that you would make us people who are ready to, be, to endure sacrifice so that this message might be proclaimed, that we might believe it a degree more as fact and live that way, and that the people around us who are perishing without Jesus might come to know him even through our witness. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.